I bet that all research sites deal with similar challenges and issues with their PIs, patients, sponsors, and CRO companies. Today, we're going to talk about some of those challenges. I'm Anna. I'm Alexandria. And this is The Tea and STEM. So Alexis and I are talking with the lead coordinator of a research site that specializes in phase two, three, and four studies in the field of allergy, immunology, asthma, gastroenterology, oncology adjacent, and interventional radiology. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks for hanging out with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, So tell us a little bit about how you got started in research, how you got bitten by the research bug. After I finished college... I worked for a clinic that trained me in all kinds of things, phlebotomy. Technically, I worked as an MA, but they never actually certified me. Mm. And then I moved to Arizona and found that I couldn't find any work. I worked at a retinologist, Mm -hmm. and I was working in the call center, and my manager moved into research, and she was like, I remember when we interviewed you, you had all of these skills, and I think you do really well in research. Do you want to come with me? Yay! Yeah, and I was so excited. I really missed patient interaction because that's what I was doing in California, and I felt like it was a good way to get back into that. That is so nice that somebody like remembered you or then thought this would be interesting and like put their their hand out towards you to be like, here, let's let's try this out. Yeah, I was That's really cool. appreciative of it. Yeah. I think I really got bit by the research bug as I got further into it, and I really realized that it's a field that's ever evolving. Mm-hmm. It's not stagnant. It doesn't matter how long you've been in it. It's always changing. You're always learning. And I think that's the best part. Right. It's not like you're clocking into work to go make the same latte over and over and over again. It's always changing. I I totally agree. 100% agree. I don't think any month that we work is the same as the last month. Exactly. We're going to be talking about some challenges with some of our uh, different components of research today. So as a research coordinator overseeing communications between your investigator, your sponsor, or the CRO, what difficulties do you encounter when you're managing this aspect of your role? I think a lot of it has to do with going through third parties. There are situations where it'd be nice to reach out directly to a sponsor instead of reaching out to a CRA and you get as a CRA saying, all right, I'll check on that. And you're kind of just at the mercy of... Mm -hmm. When that CRA has time to get to their emails, see if the sponsor responded to them, and then if they have time to get back to you. Sometimes it's just just if we had a direct line for certain things, it would streamline certain questions. I think that happened, like that same concept that you're talking about is the issue that we have with different doctor's offices. Like they vendor out their call center they vendor out their billing person. You don't ever have a real person to like talk to to get your answers situated. Like no wonder why these doctors are so bogged down with the random phone calls from the patient about XYZ bill or like trying to get themselves scheduled but they can't. It's like, well, geez, 
maybe if you just hired the right staff. <laughs> is that too right. bold to say? You're giving me the eyes. Like, that's too bold to say. Oh, no. I was going to say that might even not be bold enough. I think that goes beyond just research. That's everything. You try to mm-hmm. call any help desk nowadays and you get a third party which doesn't know enough about the company to do anything. So you get told, oh, someone will call you back. But when and how? And how do I just get a hold of them? Because it is a three-second fix once yeah. I actually just get on the phone with that person. But you've made it a three-week fix. That's very true. Like, you're, like, waiting for somebody to get you the answer. If you could just get directly to who you needed to talk to, then you're not spending hours or days or weeks waiting for somebody to get back to you. I think the most, the easiest person to communicate with out of any research study I've ever done has always been the medical monitor. Whether it's from the medical monitor from the CRO company or the medical monitor at the sponsor side, that's the one role that 100% of the time, if I sent an email off to about a patient or a situation, I'm getting a response the same day or the next day. The only time. That's the only time. I never thought of that before. When I first started in clinical research, I was pigeonholed into only talking to the CRA. I had no idea you could reach out to anybody else. As I went on and I found out all these different contacts, like it made things so much easier, but I had no idea. Like coming into it, it's just like CRA for everything. And I mean, Anna's the one who trained me and she doesn't have that mindset. But I still felt the same way. Like the medical monitors felt like someone you weren't supposed to reach out to unless you were the doctor. Or if they were reaching out to you, it's because they're the, the rescue team. They're the, oh shit, something bad happened. And that's not the <laughs> case. The oh shit squad. <laughs> yeah, the oh shit squad. And that's not the case. You don't want to reach out to the medical monitor for things like, hey, my EDC isn't letting me log in. I need a new password. You want to reach out to them for relevant things to their position. But they're so excited that someone's talking to them. <laughs> Because nobody wants to talk to the medical monitor because they're worried about, you know, saying the wrong thing or that they're wasting their time or this or that. And they're just like, I want to be involved. I want to see what the sites are up to. And they're so happy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I guess that's that fear bit. I mean, the three of us have worked with many doctors in our days, I'd say quite a few. And you get this authoritarian fear of taking it. Well, I'm going to report you to the medical monitor or I'm going to call the doctor about this. So, yeah, screw fear. All right, darling, let's move on. So would you rather have a sponsor involved in a clinical trial trial when your monitor comes from a CRO company? Yes. I don't think they need to be in every little thing, but mm-hmm. to have somebody to reach out to for more pressing matters that you know the CRA is going to be like, oh, I'm going to have to check with the sponsor. But you're in a situation where you need an answer quicker rather than, you know, a few days from now. That would be useful. There's this new role that's being rolled out <laughs> into the sponsors. <laughs> it's like a clinical trial liaison, right? Or a TTL. How, what other acronyms have you heard for this role, Alexis? There's like a dozen that have come out in like the last week. We just had a big meeting about this. There was uh, like CTL. I've heard a few other ones, but they all have to do with just uh, one of them was like a site liaison. Site liaison. And so they called it like an SLA or something like that. I don't think that there's a mass decided on term for this role. It's definitely newer in the making yeah i've heard those now that you say it but i had no idea what they were no i think this is like 
to me, it's a new concept. Right. Whether it's been around for years or not, I have no idea. But it's where a representative of the sponsor injects themselves into that study. Mm-hmm. And they make it apparent to do the pre-site visit. Sometimes they're on for um, SIVs. And then sometimes they'll just do check-in calls like twice a year of, how's everything going with our study? I freaking love it. Because we've had that role, we've had some major changes that we've been able to do you know, this is a terrible ePro device or the way that we're performing this uh, diagnostic confirmation test isn't standard of care and been able to change stuff that way. And then plus it gets the CRAs, the bad ones, like a little fire under their under their booty to like make sure that they're coming here and actually working. That's true. Yes. I don't I like them. I wish there was more, especially with like the bigger pharmaceutical companies, not just these you know, medium-sized to smaller ones. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of funny, too, how it's the small companies that don't have necessarily more funds to spend Mm. that are spending it on these positions, and the big companies that have a lot more money to spend on positions aren't. And so it makes you wonder if the smaller companies are just seeing how important this is to getting the data because they're not going to bring in a position that isn't getting them results. They don't have the extra funds to have a waste position. Right. So they must know something and be onboarding these people because they know they're going to get the results faster and better having this position and it's worth that money. So I think that's something that the big companies should look at too is where are these small but successful pharma companies spending their money because they're doing something right and then scaling that to the larger scale. Yeah. And those those smaller companies are listening to research sites and their issues with the protocol or their issues with the devices or whatever the issues are and actually like wanting to make changes. So Brittany, we hadn't originally uh, talked about this question before, but going off of them listening, do you feel like there's ever been a time where you've gone to a sponsor and been like, hey, this is something that's going on in the protocol, something that I think would make great changes and had a really good response to it? What are some situations, you know, big umbrella version of it? Yeah, I mean... I will say when I first started in the clinical research world, the way I was taught is you follow the protocol and that's it. We, we don't really have the power to mm. change anything. It's it's written. That's what you go by. As I moved on and I started to learn more about who you can reach out to and that they're actually listening, I've gotten, I guess, the courage because also before it was very like not, it was frowned upon to go to the sponsor and make complaints. Mm. Maybe not complaints, suggestions. Right. And so... Or even telling them the truth of like... Right. Stop giving them all these platitudes of everything's fine, thank you so much. Exactly. Actually telling them what's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's maybe because where I used to work previously, they worked with much larger sponsors. I It wasn't until more recently that I felt that I was almost obligated as a site to, or as, you know, a, a CRC to let these pharma companies know what we're experiencing at the site level, because they're never going to know if you don't say anything. So when it comes down to things that are just too much of a burden on patients, Mm -hmm. what are you asking them to do? How often are you asking them to come in? Uh, What kind of devices are you giving out to them? What 
what age range are you trying to get people to do X, Y, and Z? Yes. Um, I used to work with a much more elderly population. I could not imagine giving them daily diaries. On, on the devices, the electronic on the devices. devices. Yeah. But I have had studies that's tried to send people in their 70s plus home with some kind of tech. And then I was like, they're not going to use it. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. We had a visitor a few weeks ago, and she told us this story how she was uh, monitoring a site, and she bumped into one of the patients that was in her study, and she asked her, and she's like in her you know mid eighties, she's like or no uh, mid seventies, and she goes, you know, how do you like the uh, electronic diary system? And for anybody that doesn't know, it's it's like the size of a Samsung. Well, it is. It's a Samsung phone, or sometimes it's like an iPhone or something. And then you can just imagine the smallness of it and the tiny text and how the, the scrolling and the pressing of the buttons to get to the next question and submitting your answers and then transferring the data. Anyway, so she asked her, you know, how, how she liked doing it. And she's like, oh, that little buzzing thing that makes noises at me. I just give it to my grandson <gasps> and he answers whatever it is whatever those messages are for me. She's halfway through this study in this entire time. She's frustrated with the text, so she gave it to her grandkid to answer the questions. He's not even asking her the questions. He's just doodly-doodling it. Gosh. <laughs> well, okay, if you want good data out there, sponsors, you got to give us alternative options, especially age-ranged options. Exactly. Just because tech is where things are going, there should be considerations definitely for, you know, one, the disease type. Mm -hmm. I work for vision impaired people. So, <laughs> or like Why with are you vision them impaired an electronic people? device. Yeah. There was another one where they sent them home with this giant picture that would take, um, or this picture, this giant machine that would take pictures of their eyes at home. And I was like, I don't know. I don't even know how that works. And they would ship it to the patients, but our site never got a machine. We couldn't, they were like, oh, well, it gets sent to the patient. There's people to call. They'll help them, you know, set it up. And I was like, these people are elderly and I'm sure it'd be nice if this is something you really want them to do. At least give us a machine so we can walk them through it in yeah. person. And we never got one. That's ridiculous. Okay, so we had a study first started. And if you remember, it was the pediatric study. And can you tell a little bit about how that kid got screen failed and had to be rescreened because of the diary entries? Oh, yeah. Well, so... This study has some questions and they use some really big words. Mm -hmm. um, and the funny thing with this patient is that she misunderstood the word incontinence, which is a long word. And she's maybe eight. And yeah. the, the mom didn't realize that she thought incontinence meant the same thing as being constipated. Those are both really big words yeah. for an eight-year-old. Like, <laughs> and then they screen failed because they were answering the diary. Right. As I've been incontinent for like a whole week when it's like, no, no, she meant constipated. Yeah. This poor thing. So we had to like, and we didn't know what those questions were exactly. We didn't know how to explain them. They had to do their own little separate training thing. Right. And you would think if... They are giving the option for these kids to do it themselves. They would adjust the questions or have like a little explanation and be like, 
in continents and in like parentheses what it means. Right. Even not little kids. I mean, you want to talk about inclusion. There's adults that come from all different backgrounds that understand different levels of terminology. There's terms that I don't even understand. I work in this field that they come up on the questionnaires and I'm like, what does this mean? Okay, well, and I'm like, but right. you're asking a patient who may or may not know this term, even things like uh, uticaria. Yeah, yeah we know position. what that means, but does that mean that the patient knows what that means? Or depending on their understanding of the language that it's in, even if you have a translator, there might not be the same types of terms that describe it in the way that the study means. I was reading an article a few weeks ago that was talking that most newspapers write a fifth grade level because that is the general level that most people understand. But yet we're bringing people and we want to be able to include everybody of all backgrounds and education levels and research, but we're asking them questions that you need to know medications and medical history terminology to answer correctly, that doesn't seem fair. And, you know, our site does a lot of work on training on the questionnaires and what each of these terms mean and how to answer them. But sometimes, you know, that doesn't always work or get through. And sometimes new questions pop up that we don't get a heads up on that the patient is just told, hey, you're going to be asked these questions. And they, like the incontinence thing, just assume that they know what it means. Right. Right. And I feel like the education only goes so far as to one, how well they're listening and two, how much they're able to retain. So, you know, I went over it with this child and her mom, these questionnaires. There's no guarantee that this kid was listening close Mm -hmm. enough and was able to remember by the time she got home what each of these big words meant. Yeah. But in her head, she was like, oh, yeah, she explain this to me so I mean, there's so much for us to to jump into here like we, we could probably make a whole series on just this so let's end this first episode we're gonna go on to a second episode i think because we i have so much more i want to ask you um Brittany, thank you for your time today and we will pick up again uh hopefully tomorrow awesome thank you so much thank you Brittany. thank you guys for listening uh we'll see you next week and subscribe let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear <laughs>